Welcome to This Climate Business, the podcast about turning the climate crisis into an opportunity. I'm Vincent Herringer. Every week I talk to entrepreneurs, investors and experts about what they're doing to solve the climate crisis and get New Zealand down to zero emissions by 2050 or sooner. This Climate Business is brought to you by Podcasts New Zealand. Adele Fitzpatrick is the CEO of Trees That Count, a programme for planting 200 million native trees across New Zealand. With 32 million trees planted since 2016, Trees That Count has still got a long way to go. But momentum is building with business, community and government increasingly motivated to use native forests as carbon sinks and for conservation projects. Native forests are under pressure from all sides, from uh, from from pests, disease and decades of neglect. So how hopeful is Adele of meeting that ambitious target and what needs to change to get there? So Adele Fitzpatrick, welcome to this climate business. Thanks, Vincent. Thanks for having me. Well, let's start right at the beginning. So um, Trees That Count is part of a bigger program called Project Crimson, am I right? So please explain the relationship between Trees That Count and Project Crimson. Project Crimson Trust is the the charitable trust. Um, It's the legal entity and uh, Trees That Count is our program or one of the programs that we run. Um, So Project Crimson um, has been around for, for 30 years. Uh, and it was started with the um, with the idea of protecting Pahutakawa and Rata and restoring Pahutakawa and Rata, those two those That's two right, species, yeah. They were under, what, what, under uh, just briefly, what is the state of um, Pahutakawa at the moment? Uh, it's, it's pretty good. Um, certainly the Trust did an amazing job uh, at restoring and, uh, and protecting those species and bringing those back because 30 years ago, uh, Pahutakawa was almost extinct in Northland, which is um, kind of hard to believe right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so those, those uh, ecologists did a, did a fantastic job. And now uh, Pahutakawa and, and Rata are um, in good health. They, uh, they're, they're plentiful. Um, they're still under threat from um, introduced species like possums. Possums love the new buds and leaves from Pahutakawa. Mm. It's their favourite treat. Mm. Uh, so they're always a threat. Uh, and then we have our new threat of myrtle rust. Um, so that, that's a real concern. Yeah. Um, trees that count is so that's one of the programs that it fits under the Project Crimson management. How does trees that count work? It's a marketplace, am I right? Yes, yes. Well, it's got two tools really. So one is keeping account of all native trees that are planted around the country. So that's the 32 million number that you mentioned before. And, uh, and our goals are to see 200 million planted uh, over uh, 10 years. Um, so that's one tool. Uh, so that's from that takes into account all native tree planting across the country, whether it's through our marketplace or not. Uh, so the other um, tool is our online marketplace, where uh, we take funding in for native trees, and then we match those that funding uh, to planting groups around the country who want to upscale and uh, plant more natives. How much support are you getting? I I see on your website and through your literature that you're getting some great brands associated with the Air New Zealand and uh, um, plenty of companies and communities. Tell us how, is the momentum 
growing or are you struggling to get support? Uh, no, certainly the momentum is growing uh, and we our activity has been doubling uh, year on year. So our, um, our original supporters who are very strong with us still, uh, Mazda, uh, Z Energy, um, and we've got uh, uh, several of the banks, um, Westpac uh, works with us quite closely. Um, and uh, the, the more well known we become, uh, the more attention we get. And we're seen as a very uh, easy way of, of supporting native uh, reforestation across the country. You know, a lot of businesses that we find, I'm, I have conversations with corporates all the time, and uh, and they want to support native reforestation, but um, it's really difficult. <laughs> it's difficult to do. It's hard work, and there's a real science behind it. Uh, and it's not just uh, a matter of getting your staff out for a volunteer planting day. Um, it's it's much much bigger than that. You know, there's got to be the right tree in the right place. Uh, um, eco sourcing is a is a really important part. Um, uh, you, th these planting projects need to be w really well planned. The land use has got to be appropriate. There's all sorts of different aspects that, that come into play. So it's really, it can be quite difficult for a corporate to do this, but, you know, we make it quite simple by ensuring that the planting groups that we work with really know their stuff. So we have some really um, strict quality control. And we've got ecologists around the country that work with our planting groups. So um, as far as we possibly can, uh, we give our trees a really high chance of success. Um, and I feel, like, feel quite strongly a responsibility to our funders to ensure that those, those trees are, are planted uh, properly and are, are well taken care of. Is there a particular part of the country that you concentrate on that, that really deserves your attention or is it nationwide? It's nationwide, um, and I guess you know we are we're more concentrated in Auckland, Canterbury, uh, and around the North Island, just because there's probably more activity happening, more planting activity happening around there. Um, the West Coast, for example, uh, there's there's probably less of a need for for native tree planting mm -hmm. along there, um, but there there are still projects that we support. Uh, for example, on the west coast, there's a, a really lovely kiwi crèche uh, that we that we support. Um, so uh, they take the kiwi eggs out of the the local forest and they incubate them in Christchurch and then they bring them back to the crèche when when the chicks are young, and uh, and they look after the chicks so that they um, they have the best chance of success and in this predator proof area and then they're released back into the forest when they're when they're one year old um, and I had a really delightful day where I got to this is one of the perks of my job I got to go and visit the Kiwi Crash and it was um, that's uh, really so cute yeah mm. uh, the state of New Zealand forests is has always been a concern but wh where are we at at the moment we, we hear a lot for instance about the decline of forests in Northland due to uh, just this burgeoning explosion of pests, um, but then combine that with Cody dieback um, and overall a, a sense of neglect about our forests. Can you give us an overview of the state of our native estate? Uh, yeah, it's not good. Um, and, you know, it's kind of easy to get into very emotive language around around this, but, you know, from a practical sense, um, introduced pests are a massive problem. Mm. Um, even from, you know, deer, 
a deer take out all of the uh, the broadleaf in a forest and a healthy forest has diversity. So it takes all of that away and it just leaves the, the taller canopy to basically it will die without it. So introduced pests are, are huge. And like I mentioned before, you know, possums with the Hurtakawa, well, possums haven't gone anywhere. And, you know, they can go through 20,000 tonnes of foliage a night. So that's all possums in New Zealand. A night. Yeah. So that is huge. Yeah, uh, and then without, without those trees, you know, where are the habitats for the birds and, and insects uh, and, you know, habitat and food source? So, you know, really biodiversity um, uh, is, is not in a good state in New Zealand. Does the, um, is, is it regionalised? Uh, you know, I know that we have, for instance, in the South Island, we have problems with wilding pines. And then in the North Island, we, we have this problem with Cody dieback. Are there regional differences with our forests? Yes, very much so. Um, and, you know, I mentioned eco-sourcing before. So eco-sourcing is uh, a tree that is planted. It should be planted in the place where its seed came from. Oh, yeah. And... And so all of the scientists will have great long debates about this uh, because, you know, how birds are such an important part of seed dispersion. So how far does a bird fly? You know, so you can get into these uh, very in-depth conversations with scientists, which is um, well beyond me. So I try to avoid those. Um, but, uh, you know, for example, a Pahutakawa really shouldn't be any south than the Waikato. Uh, you certainly shouldn't have it in the South Island, nor should you have kauri in the South Island, yet, you know, mm. they are there. Uh, so regional differences um, are really important, plus that tree will have its best chance of success if it's planted in the place that it comes from, because it's used to that climate, you know. And for a small country, we have such big differences in our, in our climate and um, in our land. Uh, you know, you just look at the Mackenzie Basin and how dry that is, and it's supposed to be dry, uh, whereas lush Northland, you know, so different plants grow in, in different places. Um, you know, I always love going up to Northland and seeing how tropical that is, but that's, mm. that's its mm. climate uh, and very different to, to the south where, but, you know, I love the south, the beech trees in the South Island are just spectacular. So, you know, it's, it's very, it's very, very regional. And then with those, um, with those different types of species being in those regions, uh, likewise, other pests are, are specific to those regions as well. Um, you know, deer, rabbits, rabbits in Otago are horrendous. Um, possums up north. Uh, so it's, yes, it's very regional. And, um, you know, cowrie dieback is there um, because of the types of the tree and the, and the land use and, and the soil and how that is, um, how that has moved around. Um, and myrtle rust came here on the wind. Uh, so that's probably, without a doubt, will we'll spread further south. So uh, right. just kind of waiting for that. It's, and it's one of those things that how can you, can you possibly stop it? Yeah. Just quickly on Cody dieback, did, uh, tell us about the attempts to solve that. Where, where is that at? Uh, yes, yeah, so we're, we're not strongly involved in, in that, um, but, you know, certainly support very strongly the Rahui around um, preventing movement around those, those trees. Uh, you know, it would be a crying shame for us to lose those trees. They're so important to us as New Zealanders. Um, 
I know that there's been there's quite a bit of work going on with um, propagating kari seeds in other areas that don't have dieback, and then taking those back to Northland to to grow in areas that where the disease isn't isn't present. So, mm. I guess with these diseases, our hope is about propagating and collecting more of the seeds and propagating those in a safe and contained area. Um, as we've seen with curry dieback, the soil that that um, those seeds are grown and propagated in is really important because soil carries disease. Um, so we need to have these very careful ways of collecting and protecting and propagating the seeds, and then and then where do we where do we plant those? Mm. Climate change is going to have a profound effect and already is having an effect on New Zealand forests. But at least one of the upsides of climate change is uh, our need for carbon sinking, carbon sinks, carbon farming, it's often called, and the emissions trading scheme, which is incentivising planting of forests, providing a commercial imperative, I suppose, for planting. You... I know you have mixed feelings about the emissions trading scheme. Can you explain what those mixed feelings are? Because at a, at a surface level, you would think, well, terrific. People are being, companies are being incentivised now to, to plant. Yeah. Uh, the um, Yes, the emissions trading scheme. So currently what we see is it incentivises the planting of pine so because it grows quickly so this is all about um, sucking up carbon and uh, when a tree grows it sucks up carbon the challenge with our native trees is they grow so slowly so uh, our trees will uh, spend several years in the beginning putting all of their energy into the roots so they grow nice strong roots and then when they've kind of got their feet nice and settled in that soil, then they put their energy into growing the canopy and growing the leaves and the trunks. So that's where the carbon sequestration comes into. Um, so in, in every tree sequesters carbon, it must do in order to grow. But our native trees take so much longer. Now with a, a pine tree, it's got a very shallow root um, and it is it's, it grows very quickly and then you harvest it and you make something out of it or you pulp it or mm. you turn it into toilet paper and send it off to China. You know, wh whatever the commercial imperatives are for that for that tree. Um, so the incentives then um, for carbon credits then just naturally fall to encouraging pine trees. Um, so the planting of a, a monoculture, so just one culture, uh, is actually pretty destructive. Um, and it... Uh, it makes it much more, ironically, I find, uh, much more susceptible to the effects of climate change. So pine forests are very flammable um, and they grow very quickly and they're very dry. They actually suck up a huge amount of water as well. So they dry out the mm -hmm. soil. Mm -hmm. So they take the nutrients out of the soil as well. Um, and I mentioned earlier that a healthy forest has diversity to it. So if there is a plant that is particularly flammable and let's say that catches on fire, if it's surrounded by other plants that aren't flammable, then it, the flames won't go anywhere. You know, that's got, it's got no fuel source. Whereas mm. a pine forest, um, once that goes up in flames, it's going up in flames, you know, as we've seen yeah. um, with, with fires in the last, yeah, a couple of years um, here in New Zealand, it's all pine forests that, that 
that happens too. So I find it kind of ironic that it's seen as a um, as a fix for climate change, yet it is uh, particularly susceptible to to those effects. Um, why is the um, the length of time? Why is that matter for carbon sequestration? Um, is there a is there some sort of time limit on? Is it the harvesting that sets the, the kind of the upper limit on when a tree ceases to become a carbon sink? Um, well, timing is around, I suppose it goes to our international treaties. So we have time limits around what, as a country, we have agreed to do within a certain amount of time. And so that's, and carbon, um, those agreements are basically accounting. It's it's a form of accounting. So it's emissions mm. and then, you know, you um, counteract that with doing something that. Um, sequesters those emissions and so that's within a, in a particular amount of time so because uh, a pine tree grows so quickly it sequesters more in a very short amount of time whereas you know a native tree will take twice as long to do that yet it will stay here for a lot longer so you know I worry about a few things to do with the ETS and its encouragement of, um, of pine forests and one of those is that it's creating a very short fix for just one element of our environmental problem mm-hmm. um, and what happens when in 20 years time uh, you cut that down, you send that away, it goes off on a ship to China and you don't know what has happened to that log. We don't know whether that is, continues to store its carbon. If it's pulped into toilet paper, there's not a lot of carbon storage in that roll of toilet paper. Um, but if it is a permanent native forest, then it is going to continue to sequester for a very long period of time. And it uh, that, that, sequester, that sequestration rate continues because again, a healthy forest will continue to evolve and it will have offshoots and, you know, it, it will grow on all on its own and, 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 and grow babies. Um, mm. Whereas a monoculture forest, you know, won't do that. There's also all of the emissions that are, um, that come from harvesting that, that forest. So all of the trucking, um, all of the, um, all of the harvesting, all of the shipping, everything that is involved in, in that um, mm. and the impacts on our roads and our infrastructure. So, you know, and I, I think the key thing here is to be that we should be having honest conversations about what that forestry is is doing, what it's there for. And, you know, I argue quite strongly that it's not there for environmental reasons, but it's there for commercial reasons. So, you know, let's let's be honest about that. Hmm. One of the reasons a commercial imperative exists is to reward people for planting, though. If there is no incentive to plant um, forest, you know, if there's no commercial return, then why would anyone want to plant? You know, I understand the the moral imperative and, and we can certainly understand the ecological imperative. But let's face it, if we need forests at scale, which we will need for offsetting our emissions to meet Paris targets. We do need more than just doing the right thing. We actually need some sort of commercial motivation, and that I'm assuming that that's what harvesting timber does. Um, talking to Marty Very, who was one of the people on our show uh, a little while ago, um, he's completely advocating for forests. He's concerned actually about overplanting, as you've described, but partly because it will create this massive oversupply of timber. 
Um, and so his suggestion is actually we need to use more timber in construction, particularly in high-rise. But what's the commercial imperative for planting native forests? And do you agree that there has to be some sort of profit motive to get the scale of solution? Yeah, absolutely. You know, this is how we can unlock... Uh, institutional investment into native forestry completely, um, there has to be some kind of return on that investment and and not just, uh, you know, a moral I feel good one because, you know, that's 20 years down the track as well. Um, and look, I completely agree um, with, uh, with your, with, is it Marty? Um, yeah. And about you know worrying about yeah about worrying about forests and the over over supply you know New Zealand's very good at creating boom and bust industries, um, and if we do that with with um, exotic forestry, then we're also creating a massive environmental problem, not just an economic one. So you know we need to be really careful and strategic about this. Um, mm. And I agree that wood should be used in, in more products. Um, you know I'm sitting in my 100 year old house and it's wood and it's got beautiful matte floors. Why can't we be doing that with native forestry uh, as well? Yes, absolutely, we should be. Um, you know, going back to creating uh, an industry around using our beautiful native woods in those okay. types of buildings. Um, so you think that absolutely. there could be selective harvesting of native forests? Because at the moment, we, we, we really have a ban on, um, on harvesting native timber, don't we? Um, it, yeah. Uh, it, yeah, it's just not done. Um, it, there isn't really the... Um, yeah, there, there isn't the industry around it, but absolutely there could be. You know, it makes no sense to be importing American oak and putting that in flooring when we've got our own beautiful wood that we should be using because that would also encourage, um, you know, reforestation and not all of it needs to be harvested. There can be a good, sensible mix of this, which is kind of, I guess, the plan that's been missing so far. Um, you know, mm. what is a, a, where is the planning uh, around around um, what is planted and our wood use. Um, yeah, absolutely, there should be. And it gives us the opportunity too to create all those beautiful value add to our, our exports, which, you know, has been a, a long discussion in New Zealand that we just don't do that. We just ship mm, off our raw product and we miss that beautiful opportunity to create that added um, value add and, and, and income from it. Have you seen sustainably managed native forestry in New Zealand? Uh, from For harvesting? No. Yes. No, no. Mm, okay. um, so we would have to pioneer that and, um, and create effectively creating a, a new industry. Correct. And there's a way of doing that with a long-term plan of uh, how do we replace this and what is the ongoing... Um, replanting and and growth and how is this sustainably managed? You know, I think that'd mm. be a great conversation to be having. Mm, great. Another thing that I know that you've um, endorsed, uh, and I, I wonder if you've contributed to it, the Aotearoa Circle report that's just come out about biodiversity. Um, you know about that report? In fact, I think you put me onto it. 
Yes, yes, I know about that report um, and I've had quite a few conversations with um, the Aotearoa Circle, uh, which is, you know, a very impressive um, group of, of individuals and, and corporates in New Zealand who are all wanting to um, create uh, long-term solutions for New Zealand's environmental um, challenges. And so they're doing this in a variety of ways and finance, sustainable finance is one stream and biodiversity is another stream. Um, mm. And so they've just released this report, uh, which I think is, is excellent. It, it really states what is the problem with our biodiversity? Um, what are the, the government policies that are contributing to those issues? And so therefore, what are the changes from a policy perspective that need to happen? But also mm. from a practical perspective, you know, what is it that we can all be, be doing? Um, and, you know, if we go back to what are the financial incentives, uh, we mentioned in there as um, as having a solution for this, and this is around the concept of, of biodiversity credits, um, that can act as an incentive and a return on, on investments. Um, mm. well, tell us about biodiversity credits. So they're more interesting than carbon credits, right? Because they're, they're trying to capture so much more. And I, I imagine just horrendously complicated to calculate. I mean, I, I've seen these carbon create a lookup tables and they're as bad as, you know, sort of the old um, telecom cell phone plans. So, you know, what? how on earth do you go about calculating a d biodiversity credit? Yeah, yeah, it's pretty <laughs> – well, you know, if we think about things in, you know, simplicity, there's beauty in simplicity. That would be good. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. So one of the challenges with the ETS is that it's incredibly complex. Um, and then if you look at, but whereas if you if you look at the environment and and think about that as a complex system, if you look at just or focus just on carbon, it is just focusing on one element within a complex system. So mm -hmm. that means that it comes at a cost of others. So if we look at biodiversity. Um, and trying to put a value on biodiversity, and you know, biodiversity credit isn't isn't a new concept. It's been it's been talked about and studied, you know, many times in the past. But where uh, everyone's kind of tripped over is how do you put a value over a tree, over a bird, over a bee? You know, what? How do you attribute a value to all of those things? Um, whereas with our credits, it's not actually the value doesn't lie there. The value lies in the data that proves its impact. So now you, when you say our credits, you're talking about the credits issued by Project Crimson. Yes, these are the biodiversity credits that we are in the process of developing, and we've gone okay. quite a yep. quite a way down the track for this. So, right. yeah, it's a um, it's pretty exciting, and I think that this is our opportunity to really be able to make a difference and to really attract um, large scale capital institutional investment into the types of reforestation that New Zealand needs um, because there needs to be some kind of return on that investment and there is no return currently on a permanent native forest. Um, but a biodiversity credit could act as that return. So for example, it could be if there was some kind of financial instrument that had a biodiversity credit as a return, that credit could be issued on the provision of data. So let's say 
uh, a planting project might say, oh, I want to improve water quality by a certain amount, or and, and I'm going to do that by planting this kind of forest. And there might be some other kinds of biodiversity, measurable biodiversity outcomes as a result of that planting project. Um, remembering really that a tree is just a common denominator, right? It enables all of these other things. Uh, so every time data is provided that proves those outcomes have been achieved, a credit is issued. Now a credit mm. has, has value, and I know this because of all of the discussions that I have with corporates and all of those um, contributors to the Aotearoa Circle report. These are all New Zealand's big brands and big businesses who are demanding this. Um, so I know that there is a need for this and we have a tradable marketplace. So there's these uh, credits could be traded. I imagine that each of them would have some kind of unique identifier that would um, talk to the data that proves those impacts, right? So mm. I have this credit and it's number 862 and I go and look up all of the data that relates to that. And that credit would become more valuable over time, the more data rich that it becomes. So that is then if it's tradable, if there is demand for it, and we already know that there's a price on carbon, so there would be also a price on these credits. Um, if that is tradable, then that can be the return, you know, that could be issued as a result of the, the bond um, that the recipient could then trade. So there's a mm. return on that investment. And is that the value of that data or the value of that credit, is that determined effectively by the market or do you need some sort of government agency to provide, I don't know, accreditation or some sort of baseline? Yeah, look, I, you know, I think that would be helpful. Um, all of the conversations that I have with credits at the moment, um, sorry, with companies, if they are looking at carbon credits, it's because they want a verified endorsement of their good behaviour. And fair yeah. enough, I, under, I totally understand that. Um, but it doesn't have to be at uh, with the sole focus of carbon because a, a biodiversity credit with trees being kind of at the heart of that activity, of course there's going to be a carbon value to that. Now that carbon value is going to be related to the Tane's Tree Trust science that we use, which is quite different. You mentioned the MPI lookup tables before. So it's quite different to those, those tables. And the Aotearoa Circle talks about um, the flaws in, in those MPI tables um, because, mm. it, you know, they don't recognise necessarily the diversity of a, of a rich, healthy native forest. Because you imagine if you've got a forest that's all planted out in pine, every tree is exactly the same. So its carbon value is really simple to calculate. Um, but yes. a, a healthy native forest has got all, all kinds of different plants and trees and um, in it, within it, which all have a different carbon value. Plus the carbon value within the soil is much richer within a, a native forest as well. It's a much more realistic assessment or valuation of the actual ecology of the forest rather than, as you say, just one subset, which is the carbon. Kind of reminds me a little bit of the way that we try to measure the the financial economy with these very clumsy tools like GDP, which, you know, kind of become, they, they become uh, sticks to beat ourselves with and, and truly don't measure, I don't know, happiness or, or the unpaid economy of, you know, of, of house workers and care workers who are, who are actually doing work, but it's not recognised in our official statistics. They're, they're, am I right in thinking there's some sort of comparison there? 
Yeah, completely. You know, isn't it funny how um, we measure the things that aren't actually the valuable things? Um, but and maybe it's just a, it's a reflection of what is measurable at a particular point in time. So mm -hmm. if if we go back to the um, the ETS, so a, a carbon credit is issued based on um, a planting meeting a, a, some some measurable rules, which and it's per hectare, so a block. A hectare. Now, nature doesn't grow in hectare blocks. It, you know, it just doesn't work like that. Um, and it's of a certain percentage of canopy cover. And all of these these types of rules have been put in place because they were the only things that were measurable at that point in time. Now, with technology, we can measure all sorts of things. And plus, with the Tane's Tree Trust um, work that they've done around carbon calculation of native forestry, we can measure the carbon value of a native forest now. Uh, and it's a, in a much different way. It's not just necessarily dependent upon um, the hectare block or the canopy cover. Um, conversations I've had too with um, with people who are, you know, just good roosters out there doing good stuff, uh, who, have, who are protecting forests and who want to extend that forest. And they, they, they um, ask, uh, you know, if these, that extension would be eligible for carbon credits. And the response they get is, oh no, because it's already got a couple of trees there. So that's not representing new forestry. But actually from an ecological perspective, those trees there are really uh, useful and you need those because they're a seed source. So, right. so these rules are kind, of, you know, are really blunt tools that that yeah. need reviewing, and and that's what the Aotearoa Circle um, report is saying that it's time to review these because it's not actually encouraging the the, the types of behaviour that New Zealand needs. Um, and and measurement tools have moved on. You know, we can measure from satellite and lidar and um, and strap. Uh, cameras onto the bottoms of planes and we can measure in much different ways now and we so we have that ability so you know the, the rules should should then reflect that man i can see we we need more conversations about this, this is re really interesting we'll come back to this in another time i'm interested in your journey to get here you uh, have come from a commercial background you've been a marketer uh, you've worked in such well-known brands as flybys um and in many ways could have followed a, a, a corporate journey, uh, but now find yourself running uh, effectively a tree-hugging organisation. How, how did that happen? Uh, yeah, um, I know. I look back to my, you know, my 30s where I was just really focused on climbing the corporate ladder and making myself money um, and think, gosh, haven't I changed? <laughs> um, <laughs> maybe I finally That's matured. Who knows? <laughs> um, yeah, so I guess, you know, I've got a quite a long history with Project Crimson um, many, many years ago uh, when I was communications manager at Meridian Energy. Uh, one of my projects was um, creating a, a, a marketing campaign, a comms campaign around um, uh, promoting the fact that Meridian was all about renewable energy. So they only ever their generation units were all using hydro or wind. So um, that was quite a strategic um, play for Meridian at the time. It was very unique amongst all of the other generators. Um, so we, we went out and created a campaign. And um, so that was one of my projects. And 
One of the TV commercials featured a southern writer floating down a river and it ended up at Manapuri station. And so it was meant to show that, you know, renewables were, were good for the environment. This was um, the best possible way of generating electricity, which is which we all need. Um, and Project Crimson came to me and wanted some of the um, the screenshots from that ad and a book that they were publishing around about Pudaka and Rata. So we started this really lovely conversation and then at the time they were being sponsored by Carter Holt Harvey. Um, Carter Holt Harvey went through some changes of ownership. Um, the first thing to go in those types of situations is always the sponsorship. So I went back to Project Crimson yep. and said, hey, I really want to sponsor you. I think this would be a really lovely relationship. So so that was probably 15 years ago now, maybe. Um, and then I went off and did other things. And, um, and then one of the team approached me uh, about four years ago, and um, and then the chair asked me to to come on board as a trustee, which I was delighted about. That was great. It was kind of I felt like I was this nice kind of circular type of engagement there. Mm. Um, mm. And then we went through uh, where the pot of gold really was for Project Crimson and Trees That Count, and saw that the marketplace was it. Um, and then, you know, that really needed, I guess, a, a real commercial focus on it because we could see that that was an ability uh, for us to be a sustainable charity and not be um, not be rattling the tin, you know, but to actually be mm. acting in a commercial mm. way and, um, and, and create revenue and um, relate to New Zealanders and, and encourage them to be really actively engaged in nature and want to support it. And, and you know, we created a really simple way through the marketplace for, for people to fund trees and, and support native reforestation. Can companies use the marketplace to uh, offset their, um, you know, are they effectively using trees that count as part of their um, carbon credit program? Well, because we don't offer carbon credits, um, and, and actually carbon credits are almost impossible to get in New Zealand that are generated from native forestation. So <laughs> it, they well, just don't... sort of perversity in its own right. Well, exactly. Everyone wants them, um, but because they take time to get, it's really hard to get encourage that, um, that long-term view uh, mm. or that long-term investment when the emphasis is on get, having carbon credits now to prove that you are doing something. So this is where, you know, this is why we've developed biodiversity credits. Well, let's create something else that can prove you're doing good work and it's going to have a long-term benefit. Um, so we so we don't have formal carbon credits, uh, but what we do show is complete transparency of where that investment is going. So we talk in terms of trees. Trees are our currency. And we say that, um, you know, a tree funded is a tree in the ground and we show it through our marketplace and we make those connections between a funder and the project they have supported. So it doesn't mm. matter if you're Mazda and you've funded 50,000 trees, we will show all of those pro projects um, that have been supported by that investment um, and their carbon value because we know what that is by using our calculations. Or you have just funded your, uh, gifted a tree for your dad for Father's Day. You know, we can show you and your dad where that tree has gone. I think this you bring your commercial discipline, your experience of, um, you know, carbon credits are so cold that they, they really exist in the world of accountants. But what you're doing is bringing emotional connection 
between the product, the forest, and the and the and the human, and that that must give you a certain kind of pleasure, I suppose, as a as a brand marketer, as a as a comms manager. You're always looking for that kind of human connection between your brand and and the consumer, right? Yeah, always. You know, um, the user experience is so fundamental, and uh, engaging with an audience is so um, so important. Uh, and we mm. know that Kiwis care about what they see. Um, now, you can't care about carbon really because you can't see it. It weighs a ton, but no, it doesn't. It's it's this weird kind of abstract kind of concept, but we know it's all having this big impact on us all. But I don't know what it is. And, and you know, what is a carbon credit and why is that meaningful to me as a consumer? Um, but I know that I care about the trees that are outside and I care about the yeah. toys that are jumping around in them. And, you know, um, I care about my neighbourhood and my city and and how green it is and, and how healthy it is. Um, and as a mountain biker and a trail runner and living in Wellington, I'm surrounded by native bush and by trails and um you know it's it's such a treat and it's good for me uh i don't want to live in a concrete jungle and um you know we know that neighborhoods are more wealthy and they're more healthy um the greener that they they are mm-hmm. yeah. and i think you know with with lockdown we really saw that but there's a lot of conversation around um, nature coming out because we were locked in and uh, certainly yeah. a heightened appreciation of it because we saw it right so you know we care about the things that we can see yeah that's so interesting and and care about things we can measure which was your is your point about the biodiversity credits so where, where do you want to go with this you know what's 200 million <clears throat> so that's a lot of trees um and you've only got a decade to do it so um are you do you think you're on the right trajectory are there other initiatives that you you need to to make to to get to that 200 million figure yeah i think we've got a couple of challenges i think um i really need to create these biodiversity credits and create a product around around that Uh, Mm. and i need um i need corporate support and um, those corporates who can see beyond uh, the value of of a credit and certainly those who are playing in the voluntary space so there there are actually most businesses in new zealand don't actually have to buy carbon credits but they want Mm. that endorsement so Mm. it's those corporates that you know i'd be asking the them to support the biodiversity credits because actually it's it's a it's a better product um, and it's one that's much more meaningful to New Zealanders. So when we can can do that and and I think that we can attract institutional investment into large flagship projects. We've got um, a number of uh, projects that we're in discussion about and some massive ones around the country, but you know we need funding for those. Um, so. You know, I need to be able to get that funding, and as soon as we get that, we can employ people, we can get jobs, and we can get trees in the ground, um, and we can get trapping as well. Get so rid the, of those the, 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 great. Well, that would be great. So you 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 almost sorted on the supply side. You've got workers, you've got planters, you've got scientists ready to work with you. What what you're really needing now is the demand side. Yeah, we 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 need funding, and we also need. Um, we need a mechanism, and I think that our Trees That Count Marketplace can do this as well, to um, to really prove ongoing demand. So mm. one of our challenges is going to be supply of trees. 
you know, we can't get them planted if they don't exist. So um, in order to help the nursery sector, we need to be able to provide them with data. Again, come back to the value of data and uh, showing what those forward projections are going to be for planting so that they can upscale and they can start to attract capital investment uh, into their own businesses and, and be supported and, and create an, a good, strong industry um, around creating supply of native seedlings and seed collection yeah, great. And, and all of those kinds of things. <clears throat> so, so to get on board and uh, be part of your glorious future that you're articulating, how do people discover you online, Adele? Yeah, treesatcount.co.nz. Uh, and, you know, there's a pretty easy to, to fund trees through that mechanism uh, or get in touch with us through through email and, um, and we can have a chat about how you can support our native Fantastic. It's, it's too late for Father's Day. That's already gone. But uh, presumably every birthday could be a tree given. Christmas is coming up. Christmas is coming. Christmas is a big uh, campaign period for us and it's always really busy. It's really busy. And what we've noticed too is that if somebody has gifted a tree, they think that's an amazing gift and then they will start to gift trees as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah so it's kind, of, it's kind of the campaign that keeps on giving. How many socks and undies does a man need? Oh, Adele uh, Fitzpatrick, fantastic talking to you and all the best. I'm sure we'll talk again, particularly around uh, the emissions trading scheme, trying to unpack and understand the great mystery of carbon credits. Thanks for joining us on This Climate Business. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to This Climate Business. I hope you enjoyed the programme. There are more episodes as well as notes and blogs on our website, thisclimatebusiness.com. I'm Vincent Herringer, and if you know someone who deserves to be interviewed on our show, email me, vincent at thisclimatebusiness.com, or find me on Twitter, vherringer, that's two E's, one R. Meanwhile, I'll be back same time next week, and no hurrah.